you be taking your copy of God's Word this morning and turning to Luke chapter 4. This morning we'll continue the narrative of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We pick up now in verse 31 of chapter 4 and we'll go through verse 37 this morning. Please remember as I read that these are the words of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked it, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, it came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they were talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every place in the surrounding district. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we do each week, we'll ask God's blessing on our time now. Father, we come into your presence needing food from the word of God. We thank you that you've left us this word, and we thank you that it is inerrant, infallible, and it is able to equip us in every way to the good works which you have called us to do, following in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in a way that is pleasing to you. Please let this word be efficacious in that way this morning. Let your Holy Spirit flow through this room and impact the hearts of people whose hearts perhaps are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Open our minds to see where we have stumbled and fallen short of your glory that we might repent and leave this place equipped and ready for kingdom building in the name of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were asked to list off the miracles of Jesus, I wonder how many you could name just off the top of your head. I'm sure that you would think of the feeding of the 5,000. You would most likely remember Jesus walking on water, perhaps him calming the tempestuous storm in the sea. Most would remember the raising of Lazarus, the healing of countless invalids, sick people, crowds that came to him, and even that man who was born with blindness. Each of the mighty deeds of Jesus, we can classify into different groups. You can call some of them miracles of healing. You can call some of them miracles of nature. And on and on, you can categorize these different works of our Lord. With each of these things that we see in the New Testament, Jesus is rightly connected, typologically speaking, to men in the Old Testament Because they did similar things. They did miracles of nature. They performed miracles of healing. And this shows us 
and adds confidence that Jesus is the great and final prophet of the Lord. And I make no apology to Muhammad in that statement. There is, however, one miracle that sets Jesus apart from all others in the Old Testament. During his ministry, this takes place only in New Testament times. No one in Capernaum or Nazareth or anyone in that day or, in fact, at any moment in the history of the world had ever heard of someone performing a miracle like this. That is the Lord Jesus' ability to command the devil and his minions, making them obey him with mere words. Jesus begins his ministry in conflict with the slanderer, and almost immediately afterwards, he's confronted by wave after wave of the slanderer's forces, each of whom, as a matter of fact, stand impotent before him, and none can withstand the power of his words. Through the exorcisms of the Gospels, there are fascinating feats of the Messiah King we see, and it is to his authoritative and power-laced word which Luke directs the attention of the reader, and we see that chiefly this morning. After all, as I said last week, the validation of a prophet is not in his signs or in his miracles or in his wonders, but it is in the confirmation of his words. And with his word, we see confirmation that the kingdom of God has in fact come amongst his people. We'll beginning with verse 31 this morning. Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Now we can see in this first verse that Jesus has followed his own exhortation to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, he would tell them, whenever they persecute you in this or that city, then flee to the next. And so Jesus has left Nazareth, where he was almost thrown off a cliff, and he's gone down to Capernaum. And this is a small fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. We have no idea where the actual city is located today, but traveling to this area from anywhere in northern Israel would be a descent. He came down to Capernaum. This is actually about 700 feet below sea level. It would have been a descent. Luke notes that it is a city in Galilee. He makes that clear to us. It's a geographical introduction to his non-Jewish audience who would probably have been unfamiliar with the region. Now, you can't miss the significance of Jesus' choice of Capernaum. Remember, the Nazarene's jealousy of Jesus, having previously worked miracles in just this area, and in resentment, they tried to murder him for it. Well, if you don't want me in Nazareth, I guess I'll go back to Capernaum. They were willing to listen to me there. Can we call this a bit of holy trolling, perhaps? This is not a sinful act of our Lord. There's no bitterness here, no vengeance, perhaps some holy justice. Perhaps Jesus is strategically magnifying his ministry to the neighboring city of Capernaum in hopes of provoking his fellow Nazarites to jealousy and thus 
save some of them, loosely taken from Romans 11. Whatever his motivation, we can at least say that our Lord had zero hesitation walking away from his family and his community for the sake of the gospel. Nothing would take the place of obedience to the Father in the mind of our Lord Jesus. And Christians today don't like that. What we'd rather have is a Christ who will back down when he faces opposition, who will succumb to the familial peer pressure that we all face when we get together with our extended families, who will understand why we won't lovingly but boldly refute the error of even our closest relatives because that situation would be too awkward and it would certainly cause too much controversy. Jesus will later teach, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26. In chapter 4 of Luke, we see our Savior backing up his words with action. Fear not then, brethren, to go and do likewise. Don't let your family quote half of the Bible to you, that half about how you have to be nice to them and never stand on truth in front of them. If they claim to follow the same Jesus you do, and yet they still live in blatant, unrepentant sin, don't let them call your bluff this holiday season and see that you will keep hanging out with them and act like nothing is wrong. No, Instead, speak bravely on behalf of our Lord in hopes that their hearts will be pricked. And even if they reject you for long seasons, let them see that you believe in time they will turn and will repent and be healed by the Lord. In verse 31, continuing, Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Again, we see Jesus was consistent in his Sabbath day attendance and teaching. But this Sabbath was a unique one. On this day, Jesus would perform his first controversial seventh day healing. Luke doesn't make much of the fact that it's on the Sabbath here. He does mention that. But the emphasis Luke wants to make is all on the power of the words of the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 32, They were amazed at his teaching. For his message was one with authority. This is going to be repeated again in verse 36, even after an unprecedented act of exorcism. Now Mark's gospel gives us a little more detail here. He says that Jesus' words had authority unlike the scribes. That's from Mark chapter 1 verse 22. There's some interesting context I want to pull from what Mark says and apply it to Luke's emphasis on the words and the power and the authority of the words of Jesus. Over the last few weeks, I've been listening to Brother Matt Cook from our sister church, Minerville Fellowship, work through Matthew 19 and what the establishment Jews thought was a controversial teaching from Jesus on divorce and remarriage. Matt helpfully laid out the two schools of thought on the issue at that time. There was the left-leaning Rabbi Hillel and the red-pilled conservative Rabbi Shammai. 
Rabbi Shammai had interpreted Moses' choice of the word indecency from Deuteronomy 24 in regards to a woman's actions inside of a Jewish marriage. He had interpreted that word indecency very narrowly, and it only meant to him an act of adultery within the context of Jewish marriage. That would have been the only legitimate reason for getting a divorce in that day, according to the ultra-conservative mind of that day. The teachings of Rabbi Hillel, however, were the farthest thing from strictness. Loosey-goosey would be a better summary of his teaching. Well, he might have said, and this is factual, I think it's indecent when she so much as maybe burns the toast. So the result of that indecency, that act of inappropriateness in my marriage, is a legitimate cause for divorce. That's the teaching of Rabbi Hillel, and it's not an exaggeration. We know from history that the school of Rabbi Hillel had actually won the day in the minds of most Jews. This set Jesus up for failure in Matthew 19. Either way, he answered the Pharisees' question. What do you think? What do you think about the divorce rules? What do you think about the divorce laws? If he sided with the school of Hillel, that liberal-leaning approach to the Scriptures, and he did this to please the people, the Pharisees could have called Jesus out on his inconsistency with his previous teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. But if he took the rigid and narrow interpretation of the Shamite tradition, they could tell everyone that he was on the wrong side of history. We don't read the Bible that way anymore. Don't you understand you're a little backwards at this point? And that would have caused Jesus to lose popularity, which was, in fact, what the Pharisees wanted because they were jealous of the attention that he received. Now, what's my point in bringing that context into Luke chapter 4? My point is that the thing that every Jewish male prided himself on back in those days, in the mind of every Jew, what was most important was that they never, ever, ever, ever appealed directly to the Word of God. They never appealed to the Word of God. Instead, it was, I was taught by Rabbi so-and-so that whatever. Or, no, you're wrong. Didn't you know that Rabbi so-and-so taught that so on and so forth? There was no fiddler on the roof quotations from the Torah. Well, as the good book says, and then something about a chicken... The absolute standard in the day of our Lord Jesus was not the Word of God. It was man's tradition. Isaiah saw this coming a long way off when he prophesied, This people draw near to Yahweh with their mouth. They honor Him with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from the Lord. Their fear of God is in the commandment of men learned by rote. Therefore, behold, Yahweh will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of the wise men will perish. 
and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden from Isaiah 29. Jesus didn't come to play the man's opinion game. We hear over and over in the Gospels, and you'll hear in this Gospel later on, Jesus say something like, you have heard that it was said. And when Jesus makes that statement, it's code language for the tradition of the elders says, it's as if he's saying, well, you know that rabbi so-and-so has said, or this rabbi, or the elder's tradition is such and such. Jesus, however, quotes the scriptures differently. He says, it is written. And then he quotes directly from the word of God. And then he would follow his quotations of the scriptures by giving an authoritative interpretation. Whenever he says, you have heard that it was said, quoting that tradition of the elders, Jesus would then correct the tradition of the elders by saying, I say to you instead... You see what was so shockingly different about the teaching of Christ. You see why the people is am are amazed at the Lord's teaching and say his word possesses authority. When he speaks, he speaks like nobody else we've heard. We face a similar crisis in our day today, church. The word of God does not hold sway in our country or even in our county as it once did. Every day... In the minds of people in our community and across this nation, the word seems to lose relevance to things like tradition or to popular teachers or to science, whatever that means. If the Ten Commandments still hang in our courthouse, they serve roughly the same function as the holiday tree that gets put up every single year. It's kind of a nostalgic decor. God and his word are empty in our eyes. They are, as theologian David Wells says, a weightless thing. I'll quote David Wells. He said, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to be not even noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and is truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies? Wells says, that is weightlessness. It is a condition we have assigned him after having nudged him out of the periphery of our secularized life. Weightlessness tells us nothing about God, but everything about ourselves, about our condition and about our psychological disposition to exclude God from our reality. Nazareth's God was a weightless God. They didn't revere his word, and so when the word stood in front of them to preach the word, they had no gauge on their dashboard for him. They didn't even know what to do with him. 
The result of the scribes' exaltation of the traditions of the elders was that their words to the people of God to whom they were to serve carried no authority. They lost the ability to command the people from the word of God. I ask you this morning, beloved, what trumps the authority of the word of God in your life? Perhaps you respond by saying nothing. Nothing in all of life trumps the word of God. This last week, more news broke revealing the extent of the atrocities that are taking place by Hamas in the nation of Israel. Widespread killing of civilians, rape, torture, and enslavement of women, little children hardly old enough to walk being held hostage and even murdered by their captors, and other acts of brutality that I can't mention here. Where would you go for a fair and just punishment for criminals like these? Well, the Word of God. You say the word of God. God, didn't he tell Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed? Genesis 9, 6 says, for a man is made in the image of God. No disagreement from me here. I see no reason why the word does not speak chiefly to this issue and give us an appropriate measure for justice. Let me ask you, would you apply the same principle to a woman who willfully went into an abortion mill to murder her child? Let's be honest. We want God's word to have authority when it sounds right to us. Does the word of God say nothing about giving our children over to be educated by a God-hating state instead of in the paideia and nethusia of Christ, the culture of Jesus? Can we dismissively give to Caesar that which is made in the image of God? And Jesus said, what is made in the image of God? Give to God. Does the word have no authority over the substances that we inject into our bodies? Does it tell us that love of neighbor always trumps temple of the Holy Spirit? Every time, without question, because of science? Is the word of God silent on wisdom for the voting booth? Do we fancy that the word of God has nothing to say to baby murderers so long as they are concerned with the rights of the oppressed minorities? And those oppressed minorities also happen to be the most frequent solicitors of baby murder. Does the word of God command children to obey their fathers? Of course it does. And the fathers insist on this. But does it not also make a claim on those fathers to take time to study the word of God so that they can bring those children up as obedient and submissive? The word of God requires godly leadership in the home from the husband, and Christian wives are insistent on this. But that same word commands the wife's submission to him even when he fails and prohibits her from passive-aggressive tactics to manipulate him into her conception of what leadership looks like. If we are going to claim that this word has authority over our culture, then we first have to submit to its authority over us. Where are you not submitting to the word, beloved? We've had a lot of newcomers over the last two years, and we are grateful for each one of you joining us. 
But if you hang out here for any length of time, you are going to find out that Christ the King believes that the Bible does, in fact, speak to every area of life without reservation. God's Word is authoritative, and we desire to submit to it in every way. I ask you this morning, will you join us in striving for this kind of obedience to the Word of God, even though you're going to have to die to some things that you once thought were true? Are you ready to do that? J.C. Ryle offers a helpful warning. He says, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It is a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. We may know the Bible intellectually. and We may have no doubt about the truth of its contents. We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts, and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And yet all this time, the Bible may have no influence over our hearts, our wills, and our consciences. We may, he concludes, we may in reality be nothing better than the devils. Well, I want to speak about those devils for a minute. Let's go on to verse 33. What did they think about the authority of Christ and his word. What do the demons do when they come into contact with, when they hear the word of God spoken from the mouth of Christ? In verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Now I mentioned earlier that this is the first demon possession account in Luke. He mentions here a man And he's very specific too. He says, this man was possessed by the demon. There's a difference between possessed and oppressed. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And this this demon, he says, it's a spirit. Now we've, we've come into contact with Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. So Luke's making a distinction here. This is not the good kind. He says, it's an unclean spirit. And that's probably referring to its moral characterization. It was, in fact, demonic. What's interesting in this is is that Jesus is in the middle of teaching when this man stands up to speak. This is towards the end of the synagogue service. This individual stands up at this point to give a little bit of sermon feedback. You have to stop and wonder, how did this guy get in here? A demon-possessed man sitting in the middle of the synagogue through the entire service. Nobody says anything. And he stands up as Jesus is giving that exhortation or explanation of the scripture passage that he just read. It's not like he kicked the back doors open and came in screaming and tearing his clothes off. I fear for the demon-possessed man who tried to enter our sanctuary that way. Before the exorcism, he'd need medical attention for lead poisoning. (laughs) And, thank you, hats off to our security team. This man is just sitting there through the whole service. No mention is made of him raising any kind of cane or trouble. Nobody prevented him from coming in. Nobody shuffled away from him because he's undressed or he smells bad. This man took his seat in the assembly. No one stopped him. It could be that those around him were unaware of how ensnared he was in the powers of darkness. It's very likely. One commentator I read 
postulated that this man, the way the text phrases it, may have even been a part of the minyan, the Hebrew 10. This was a regular number of Jewish males who had to be in good standing in the synagogue assembly in order for prayer to take place. That is a possibility. If you look back up in verse 31, the Greek word for Sabbath in verse 31 is plural. Jesus literally, and most translations don't translate it this way, but Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbaths. So this is a frequent thing he's doing. He's doing it regularly over and over again. And this man was there. He could have even been in regular attendance at these meetings. We do know this. He was there throughout the majority of the service because Jesus didn't get up and give his teaching time until the end. And then he cries out with a loud voice, let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, in this moment, the forces of darkness draw the cosmic battle lines with our Lord. Utilizing the vocal cords of his host, the demon, notice it's singular, screams as if in agony at the words of Christ. The Legacy Standard Bible and most other translations interpret the first word, it's a, it's a Greek word, hea. It's a shout of indignation. They translate it as, let us alone. And that could summarize what the demon is trying to communicate. He could have also been saying, ah, crying out in pain and agony. He could have been saying, enough, stop it, don't say another word, I can't take it anymore. All of those ideas could be encapsulated in that one hey-ah phrase. And then he says, what have we to do with you? The we probably makes you think of a legion of demons. You're probably thinking of the Gerasene demoniac story where there was a legion of demons inside of this one man. But Luke here speaks only of one demon. Some think that he's referring to other demons in the area or the state of the synagogue in Capernaum at that time. This man was completely dominated by a demon, but there were more in attendance that day. Men sat in a service where demons were free to roam and the whole synagogue was ate up with them. From his heavenly throne room, the exalted Jesus spoke to the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia and warned them of the synagogue of Satan from Revelation 2 and 3. Luke could be giving us that peek into the unseen realm. I think, however, the plural we in verse 34 is referring to the demon and the man that he's possessed. He's saying something like, I have such power over this guy, he and I are one. We have nothing to do with you. Now that actually adds a little extra context to the rest of the verse. It makes the question, have you come to destroy us? Almost a threat at the Lord Jesus. You can't touch me without hurting him. You try and do something to me, I'm gonna make sure he pays for it. Demons do have the power to bring tremendous harm to those that they possess. On a recent episode of The Haunted Cosmos, Ben and Brian recounted an eyewitness story from the lone survivor of a hiking group in the tundras of Siberia. 
Within the span of a few minutes, this one woman's cohort of five hikers dwindled down to one as wild, gruesome, and horrible deaths spread from one explorer to the next, and there were no visible or physical implements used to cause any harm to anyone. Autopsies were performed after the incident, but they gave no answers to what happened that day. There is still no explanation attributed to the mystery that happened on that trip. Demonic activity makes sense to me. Stories about demon possession and the reign of the powers of darkness cannot and should not be dismissed out of hand. Well, that was then. This is now. Demonic power is real and it still rears its ugly head in parts of the world today, especially those parts that have not seen the establishment of the gospel. Let me say two important things, however, in response. The first is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. This reign of terror, possession, and mutilation which up to the cross had dominated the globe, is precisely what Jesus came to put a stop to. The darkness cannot resist the light. The word of God always trumps the lies of the evil one. And he's running out of room, too. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is reigning until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, Hebrews 10. There are still demons in Siberia, perhaps? Maybe. Are there some in the Himalayas? Perhaps. What about other remote parts of the world? In Africa, in the unreached groups in the 1040 window? Or even in the United States? There may be. I remember feeling an almost palpable darkness in one city in Central Asia that we visited last year. But let me ask you this, what can the demons do to those who belong to Jesus Christ and to their homes and to their towns? I tell you, brothers and sisters, nothing. The demons can do nothing to those who belong to Christ. They are as weak as this demon was in front of the Lord Jesus. He even admitted to knowing who Jesus was. Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are. You're more than just Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Holy One of God. What a contrast to the town of Nazareth and their response to Jesus' preaching. The whole city rejected his claim of Messiahship, but the demon here admits that he knows who God's Holy One is. They have to admit who he is, and they are powerless to do anything about it. Jesus said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. He later said, the prince of this world has already been condemned. And also, he said, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has in fact come upon you. Beloved, why don't we see so much demonic activity anymore? It is because Christ won at the cross and the proclamation of his victory is an eviction notice to the demonic powers everywhere that they have to pack up and leave. Day by day, he's advancing his cause and moving his gospel forces around the world and before the end, his enemies will have nowhere else to run. 
So if you belong to Jesus and Jesus lives in your home or your country or nation claims Christ, what can the enemies of God do there? In fact, they can do nothing. Not unless you give them permission. So resist them, as Peter will say, firm in your faith. And that brings me to the second thing that I wanted to say, and it is a warning. Can the church seed martyr one ground back to the devil? It not only can, but it's been doing this for years. In addition, the church can let in people who claim to be worshipers of God when in reality they are following the devil. And it has been doing so for years. How do you get to a place where women are teaching heresy and men defend them in that teaching? And gay mirage is being officiated in the churches that once heralded the name of Christ? And dogs and cats and other beasts are being worshipped in a pastor's blessing on the animals, which is just a modern version of the carvings of creeping things that lined the walls of the temple in the days of Ezekiel. Beloved, this is why we take covenant membership so seriously at Christ the King. People hear us talk about closed communion or close communion, and they think in their hearts, well, these folks can't tell me I'm not a Christian. Not only can we, it would be a dereliction of pastoral duty to our current flock and your rebellious heart to let you come in in an unworthy manner. Hear this. The children of God and the children of the devil are manifest clearly for all eyes to see, the Bible tells us. In that everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. You can sit in here all day long and profess Christianity, but if you do not strive to do righteousness, including repenting of the sin that you commit regularly when it happens, and it does for all of us, and if you do not love your church family here, including individual members that you hold a grudge against, even going so far as to say, I will not become a member because I want this church to help me to see that I love Christ. I want them to hear my testimony and help me work through that and validate that testimony with me and we can worship God and rejoice together. How can you say, if you're not willing to love your brother, you're not willing to love your sister, if you're not willing to walk in righteousness, but it doesn't matter, I know God. The devils even say, I know that I know. And all of them will sink into hell. James said, even the demons believe and it sends chills through them. Perhaps you have said for years that you are one of God's people, but you secretly hate his commandments and you sit in bitterness against the church of Jesus. If you feel the work of the devil in your life, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. As we will see in just a moment, demons have no sway on the words of our Lord. So I encourage you now, lost person, run to him. Run to Christ. If you run to him, he will loose the chains of the devil on your life. Run to him. Why wait any longer? What else does this life afford you except the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season? And then with those devils, 
Eternal chains in gloomy darkness and a lake of fire reserved for those who do not obey the Lord. By faith, rejecting all of your earthly affections and sins, run to Christ. In that instant, you will find freedom and salvation from both the power of your sin and the power of the evil one. Now we come to the place where our Lord Jesus responds to the demon. Jesus rebuked it, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, it came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they were talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every place in the surrounding district. We do have some records of Jewish exorcism. The rituals, even pagan attempts to exorcise demons throughout ancient history. These often involve elaborate litanies, carefully scripted incantations, charms, pacifications. It's in that whole process in which the people place their hope that by all of this process they were going through, the power would be actualized and the demon would be forced out of the individual who was suffering. But none of that was necessary for Jesus. He commands silence and we don't hear another word from this dark incubus. The demon cannot resist the word of the Lord. He attempts to harm the man by throwing him down. Luke makes that clear to us, but you can see it's to no avail. The man escapes completely unharmed. The demon also comes out. And in this instance, the first knee of the principalities and powers bowed the knee to King Jesus. Among the crowd sitting in attendance, even they had eyes enough to see that it was just Jesus' words that had all the power and authority. What is this message, they said in verse 36. This is the same Capernaum which Jesus will later rebuke for its unbelief. Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Yet even in this moment, they had the perception, they had insight, they understood the org chart of heaven and hell right here in this moment. We know that they refused to submit to it. Did they know if the man listening to Jesus that day was demon possessed? We can't be sure. But they for sure had never seen anyone cast out a demon using only a command. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Church, the world loves signs and wonders. The miracles recorded in the pages of Scripture have their own cult following. You can type in miracles of the Bible on the internet and go peruse around, and there are all sorts of weird groups that come up with all sorts of explanations and all sorts of reasons and all sorts of followings for we need to be doing this or that miracle. How did it happen? Can science explain this or that? That makes him a hero or he's the final prophet. But the crowd in Capernaum saw something different that day. They'd heard the report of Jesus' previous works. They were in anticipation of seeing more and of hearing his great teaching. But what they saw 
when they saw that demon fall down, no one had ever seen. No one. Jesus, as I read earlier, he'll later say in Luke 11, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has in fact come upon you. This marks the dawn of the new age. Jesus has brought heaven down to earth. The king has come again to his own, and there is not a single cosmic rebel who can resist his commands. So I say again to you, if you come to the end of a sermon on Jesus and the devils, and you you feel fearful, or you feel anxious about the powers of darkness, or perhaps there's someone in here who's eager to get out and read some creepy stories about how powerful demons still are today. If that's the case, you are completely missing Luke's point. Not only does Christ have all authority over the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and not only do they each have to submit to his word, And he doesn't have to shout or scream or wave a magic stick in front of them or make sure to pronounce the magic words just right. Not only can they not hurt an individual unless Christ permits. Remember, this demon wasn't able to get off a last shot and say, ha ha, I got him anyway. The man was completely unharmed. This Christ, in this moment, has proved not only that he's connected typologically to the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings, but that he is better than all of them. He is the prince of heaven, in fact, because he can tell demons to go pound sand and they have to obey him. It brings a really beautiful context to Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. We read it just a few weeks ago. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How powerful is our Messiah? We're untouchable. We're untouchable. Those verses are filled with reference. To the unseen realm. And when the devil's forces try and assault you, beloved, Jesus need only tell them to be silent. They must obey. And even if they are permitted to test you for a time, not even they can separate you from the love of God through the blood bought. Savior Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is this coming week. When you go around the table this coming Thanksgiving with family and friends, and everyone lists off what they are grateful for, I think it would be appropriate for somebody to say, I'm thankful that Jesus crushes the skulls of his enemies. I wonder how grandma and grandpa will handle that from the nine-year-old grandchild. My Jesus has all authority over the forces of darkness. That's what I'm thankful for. Something we should be very grateful for. It's the response Capernaum gave. They immediately began circulation of this event to every place in the surrounding district. Jesus got the demons to be quiet, but the rest of Capernaum started talking. Christ the King, will you go and do likewise? 
This mission of Christ to conquer all realms, both seen and unseen, is continuing today. And we live in the glory and protection of that conquest. So don't be afraid to share the good news. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, even over his enemies. And the end game is that they will have nowhere else to run. As our favorite line from Joy to the World beautifully states, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus and that in his blood we have protection by that same power. If there are any here today who do not know Jesus and sense that they are vulnerable, sense that they are in danger, sense that they are walking in darkness, would you push that even further into their hearts right now so that they cannot deny, they can't walk out of here and turn away from the truth that they are apart from Christ? Would you convict them in such a way that they would run to Christ and be saved even in this moment and that they would find protection from all the forces of darkness and even the sin which clings so closely? And for those of us who love Jesus, let us go out of here rejoicing today that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases and Jesus has all authority even over the things that we cannot see that every day perhaps try and make advances on us. Yet one little word, as Martin Luther rightly said, one little word will fell them. Give us that joy in this confidence, Lord, that Jesus is Lord of all. It's in his name that we pray, amen.